in the morning, love And the sunlight hurts my eyes And something without warning, love Bears heavy on my mind Then I look at you And the world's all right with me Just one look at you And I know it's gonna be A lovely FM 103.5, Just In Time Conversations. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, inviting you to be in community with us about conversations and ideas that matter with people making a difference. Today, our our guest is Ariel Lebam, a professor at the University of Connecticut, associate professor uh, and uh, author Thank you, Ariel, for being here, being in community with us. How are you this morning or afternoon now? Hi, Justin. I'm great, and I'm so glad to be here. Um, As you know, I'm a big fan of yours and everything you do for our community here in Hamden, and it's just a pleasure always to speak with you. So I, I always like to start this with, you know, just something lighthearted so that people get to know people and understand who they are. Before we get into all, all the topics and discussions and so uh my family is from jamaica and so you know different people do it differently in the islands but is it ginup or is it ginapas <laughs> i don't know what you're referring to justin what, what do you mean oh you don't don't know of ginup and ginapas no oh man so sorry no, that that's okay. So, uh, do you call avocados avocados, or do you call them pears? Oh, I call them avocados. Okay, hey, I I, I am my family. They call them pears, and I'm always just like, I don't know what you're talking about. If I ask to get pears, and it's not sweet and succulent, I am so confused on what's going on. But you know. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. My, my parents both grew up in Southern California. So avocados have always been a huge part of my life. My mother yeah. always, uh, you know, taught me how to how to pick them, how, you know, not pick them from trees because I grew up in Rhode Island, but how to choose them in the market, how to best, um, you know, have them ripen at the right time and when to put them in the refrigerator to keep them from getting too ripe and all that. So av- she would make all different avocado salads and, and all sorts of things. So avocados are near and dear to my heart, but I would never confuse them with pears. <laughs> hey, you, so you are an associate professor. I got the chance and opportunity to read through some of your book um, that we'll get into, but I, I was shocked and amazed that you for a second thought about going into law school. And so what made you decide to go into history instead of law uh thank you for doing that deep dive into my acknowledgments in the book um yeah so i um i was fortunate enough to attend yale as an undergraduate um and i uh was very caught up i think for a for a, a moment a few years 
um, in the culture there of a certain kind of um, success. And I, I always had a social justice uh, mentality and a social justice bent. So what I wanted to do was uh, to be a labor lawyer on the side of workers. Um, and that desire developed pretty early um, in my college career. And I had always loved history. I was a history major. I was doing a lot of historical scholarship at the time, you know, at an undergraduate level. Um, and those, that interest in history fed the interest in social justice and in, in labor law in the sense that I was often studying organized workers. I was studying social activists and political activists. And so I, for a while, that felt like a way that I might be able to make a positive difference um, in, in my communities and society. And so after uh, undergrad, I decided I'd better go get a job because I had student loans and, um, you know, I wasn't really ready to go to law school yet. And I went uh, to work for District 1199 in Hartford, hey. um, where I worked for almost two years and um, organized workers. I was in what's called new organizing, which meant I was working with uh, workers who wanted to form a union but hadn't yet. And it was grueling work. It was very difficult. And basically what I determined about myself personally is that I can't sustain a fighting stance in a day to day on a day to day basis. It's just not in my in my constitution. I wanted very much to continue doing that work um, intellectually and and in terms of my heart, um, I wanted to be able to do that work. But uh, for a number of reasons, including what I now understand was mental illness, um, I, I just couldn't sustain it. I couldn't be on that, in that fighting stance uh, day in and day out. And so I turned away from the idea of going to law school because I knew that if I were a labor lawyer working on behalf of, of workers that I would be fighting uh, all the time. And it just wasn't in my constitution. So I turned back to my love that had really been around since I was in second or third grade, which was history. Um, and and decided to go in that direction wow no that that is a powerful story um thanks i i guess you know you are the author of no barrier can contain it um uh, and so it talks about uh cuba right in a particular time in history and so i guess you know you switch going into in, into history instead of law how did you get and land on writing this book about Cuba and like what what drew you to this particular time in the early 1900s about Cuba that you said I need to tell this story Absolutely. So uh, the first part of the answer to that question is how, why Cuba? And that really stems from the fact that I had taken Spanish uh, in school for many years when I arrived um, in college and I wanted to study abroad. Um, and I really wanted to go to Argentina. Um, but the program that was offered, uh, that was accredited by my university uh, to go to Argentina was, was quite expensive and I just couldn't make that happen. So um, my second choice was Cuba and, and that program was much more affordable for me and my family. And so I ended up my junior year um, in, in the spring semester in Cuba. And I immediately was taken by the way in which Cuba celebrates its history and, and weaves its historical story and um, maintains its, its historical memory. 
Um, and what I always tell folks is, um, have you ever been to Cuba, Justin? I have not. One of these things. Okay. Yeah, you'll, you'll get there. But um, uh, what I always tell people who've never been to Cuba is um, the way that we have billboards to McDonald's or Coca-Cola, Cuba has billboards to its history. And granted, that is a history that is filtered through a very particular lens of the Cuban revolution, of the Cuban government, um, which is a whole topic of debate and, and, and conversation and research. But nevertheless, you see history everywhere as you move around Havana, as you move around the country. And that I was really taken by that um, and, and really got interested in particular in this period of uh, what's called the Cuban Republic, which is the period between uh, Cuba's independence from Spain and the Cuban Revolution of the late 1950s. So that period of basically um, the first 60 years, um, minus a few, almost 60 years of the 20th century are um, are considered the Republican period. And so I, I, I just enrolled in whichever Cuban history class was available at the university. I was an international student at the University of Havana during that semester. And I just enrolled in a Cuban history class. I didn't pay much attention to which Cuban history it was, and it turned out it was the Republican period. And so I really became fascinated with that history and familiar with that history while I was in Cuba. Fast forward a few years, when I was working at 1199 in Hartford, um, it, was the it was as if the history I had been studying sort of came alive in front of me in the sense that I had, I had for several years at that point been studying various Cuban leftists, um, socialists, anarchists, communists, and looking at their interaction with uh, the masses of organized labor, um, the, the, the many people in Cuba who belong to unions or fought in other ways to, to organize their, their um, co-workers. When I got to 1199, and I hope they won't mind me saying this, um, I met an anarchist. I met some communists, um, mostly young people like me who were, and, and, a, and a socialist, um, mostly young people like me who were um, there because they were idealistic. They wanted to make, um, you know, really radical change in the society, um, you know, to, to massively rework uh, our socioeconomic system, our political system, et cetera. And it was as if the people that I had been studying were now in front of me. I didn't have a particular ideology at that point. I mean, I was certainly left leaning, but I didn't uh, I didn't subscribe to any particular ism. And, and here I was listening to conversations between people debating the, the merits of their various positions. And it was fascinating to me. Um, and one of the debates was about the Spanish Civil War. Um, <laughs> the you know who who was who was the perpetrator of the injustices of the spanish civil war on the left did the communists you know try to exterminate the anarchists were the anarchists subverting the communists and they, these folks you know people my age at the time i was in my early 20s were really duking it out over this this long long past uh events and i thought huh how interesting this i i mean i read um homage to Catalonia in college about the Spanish Civil War, but that was it. That was all basically I knew about the Spanish Civil War. And um, I, I started reading about it. And when I decided to go to graduate school in history, I just had this thought that wouldn't go away, which was, I wonder if I could combine my newfound interest in the Spanish Civil War with my study of the Cuban Republican period. And I thought, well, I don't know if there's anything there, but it's worth looking into. So I, when I got to graduate school, yeah. I looked into it and lo and behold, there were 
hundreds of, uh, you know, in, in, in really th many thousands of Cuban anti-fascists, about a thousand who went to Spain to fight and to serve in other roles, but, but many, many thousands more, tens of thousands at home in Cuba on the island and in the, commun the Cuban community of New York City, um, who were very much involved in the conflict. So that's that's where the what was the dissertation um, initially in graduate school. Uh, that was the 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 genesis of the dissertation, and then the dissertation became the book. Now, thank you for those of y'all who are just joining us. You're listening to Just in Time Conversations, WNHHFM 103.5. Our guest, Ariel, uh, author of No Bears Can Be Contained. Uh, you know, we were just talking about how you got to this, from dissertation into writing the book. And so I, I think one of the things for me was to unpack, right, different meanings of words. And so, you know, anti-fascist, uh, I've never really thought about how all-encompassing it can be. Uh, but look, what is anti-fascism, right? The, uh, it, it, right? Like, I guess you first have to define what is fascism, right? Which is the, the education as I learned, as, as I, I read. But, you know, what is anti-fascism and why well, Why are the conversations now on the right and the left, from your opinion, you see that these words thrown around so easily? fascism and anti-fascism. What are they? And why do you feel all of a sudden that we're having these conversations? Wow, that's, those are a lot of questions and very good ones. Um, I'm not going to try to define fascism. Uh, as you mentioned, it's a, it's a lengthy section in my book. It's a huge debate. There are thousands of books written on uh, the subject of fascism. But for my purposes, um, you know, we think of uh, Hitler's Nazism. We think of Mussolini's uh, fascism. That's where the term uh, originated. We think about uh, Franco um, in Spain. Those are sort of the main people that, that tend to be considered fascists, although there are scholars who think only Italian fascism is fascism. I'm not going to get into all that. Um, but the way that I defined it in um, in my book is really as the characters of my book um, defined it for themselves, which was in, in the Cuban context, anti-dictatorial, anti-imperial, because during the Republican period, uh, there was what we in Latin American history call neo-colonialism. That was U.S. imperialism on the island, meaning U.S. economic and to a certain extent political control of Cuba that really hindered its sovereignty um, and hindered its economic development. So that's what we mean by neo-colonial. Um, Cuban anti-fascists were for freedom, sovereignty, um, political economic control, and in many cases, what we would today call social justice or economic justice, um, radical reform and or revolution, depending on which anti-fascists you're talking about, to totally redo uh, or at least significantly redo uh, Cuban politics, society and, um, and economics. Um, so I always emphasize that in, in the Cuban case, but also I think in many cases, including 
the case today, uh, so-called Antifa, which is how I was always taught to say it, although now people are saying Antifa, but um, including that case today, um, anti-fascism is actually for a lot of things. Um, so in, in the case of the modern or the contemporary movement today, um, people who identify with Antifa, for example, are for racial justice. They're for economic justice. Um, they are for uh, freedom, um, freedom from a number of things, including uh, police brutality, the, the prison system, um, economic um, uh, degradation, uh, overwhelming medical and student debt. Um, you know, they're, they're for freedom from, from those things. So it's not just anti, it's not just against uh, specifically fascism, it's also for a better world more generally. Um, in terms of why we're seeing sort of a rise in this debate right now, um, that's an enormous question that many people are weighing in on. And I don't really think I'm an expert um, on the, the modern general um, movements in the way that I feel like I'm an expert on the specific 1930s and 40s Cuban movement. Um, that's, that's my wheelhouse. But mm. I will say that Antifa has been around for a long time. They're not new. Um, indeed, Antifa has existed since what we can, might call the, in, the original anti-fascism, uh, but particularly since the 1970s and especially in the 1990s, Antifa grew and strengthened around the world um, in the U.S. and Canada, in Latin America, in Europe. Um, a great book on this is Mark Bray's book, Antifa. Um, Mark is a historian himself and, um, and a, a, an activist. He wrote a book on Occupy Wall Street. Um, he's written some other sort of historical monographs. Um, his last name is Bray, B-R-A-Y, Mark Bray. Really uh, interesting history of Antifa going back many decades in his book. Um, but I think, you know, it's always important in the sort of rhetoric on the right now that sort of want to make Antifa out to be some new phenomenon that no, they've been around for, for decades. And the reason is that the fascists have also been around that whole time. Right. Nazism never fully died. Uh, fascism never fully died. Um, you know, uh, Francoism didn't die in Spain. I mean, in, in all of those countries and, and across the world, those right wing forces have continued to exist. And as long as they exist, I know Antifa will be there to oppose them. So um, I used to joke you would hear these um, in the early aughts. You would hear these reports and they probably still exist, although I think it's all gotten more uh, explicit now, but it used to be that you would hear um, a report, say Germany, uh, on NPR, and they would say uh, a group of neo-Nazis rallied in such and such town on Saturday and were met with opposition by black clad activists. And they would never say that they were Antifa. They would always say like these random people showed up to oppose the neo-Nazis. And um, that always struck me as, as sort of darkly funny because why wouldn't you name the people who are against the Nazis? You're gonna name the Nazis, but not the people who are against them. It's, it's very odd. So I don't know if that's, uh, you know, it, it, that's sort of sca scattered uh, musing on the subject rather than a, a coherent answer to your question. But um, I, I think those questions are very important. No, I, I think one of the things that I enjoyed was this idea of uh, transnationalism, right, where people 
were identified uh, in multiple ways right, to Cuba and to uh, uh, other countries that had been part of the empire um, that I, as I was reading, it was hard for me to really picture other places that have that connection where you have people who see a connection to two or three different countries yet have a shared or a feeling of a shared kinship. Um, and, and so that was just something that really stuck out to me. Um, why do you think that was, right? Uh, especially in this particular time that you talked about, um, you know, in 1935, you had black Cubans go and fight against Mussolini. And it's just like, for me, it was the first time reading, learning of this. And I'm just like, why did you think that was your fight? <laughs> well, that's a that's a fantastic question. And let me clarify, um, they, black Cubans did not go to physically fight uh, Mussolini in Ethiopia. Unfortunately, they were they would have, but they were not. They were stopped for legal and, and economic reasons. They couldn't make it to to Ethiopia during the the Italian invasion in 1935. But they, as you're as you're referencing, they rallied support across Cuba the best that they could. Um, and I do note in the in the book that um, there wasn't a mass uprising in Cuba against fascism until the Spanish Civil War started. Um, and and I've said this in other interviews. I I tend to describe that um, phenomenon to people as using a modern term, a Black Lives Matter moment. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that when it was Ethiopian children, for example, women and children who were endangered, because at this time they always use women and children, women and children as as sort of the 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 tearjerker or the the um, impetus to to get people to be involved, right? Save the women and children. When it was Ethiopian women and children, most Cubans, white Cubans, the majority on the island, didn't act. And yet when Spain was, when Spanish children and women were endangered, then all of a sudden there's this mass outcry. And there are those, those Cubans, um, mostly black, but also white, who really did support Ethiopia, um, just railed against this hypocrisy on the part of the majority white Cuban population. And, and re the reason I call that a Black Lives Matter moment is essentially what these these outspoken uh, critics of the majority are saying is, you didn't you didn't act as if Black Lives mattered, right? Mm -hmm. You you sat on your hands when Black lives in Ethiopia were under threat, and yet when white lives were under threat, you immediately mobilized. So there there's a, a real tension, a real racial tension around Ethiopia, on the island. To answer your question about why why did Cubans of African descent think that Ethiopia was their was their fight. That's another enormous topic, but I what the way I'll the way I'll summarize it is that within what's called the African diaspora by scholars, meaning the, the African descended people of, of everywhere, um, Ethiopia had a particular, I'll say spiritual and, and social um, meaning because until the Italian invasion, um, Ethiopia was quote, the only free country of Africa. Um, all the other countries, with the exception of Liberia, had been colonized by Europe by that point. Liberia is an, is an interesting case because it was settled by people from the U.S., so it, nobody was ever quite clear whether it was sovereign or not. But Ethiopia was fully free at that time until, until the Italian invasion. And that was deeply meaningful mm -hmm. to people around the world who were of African descent um, because, you know, 
rightly, the colonization of Africa by Europeans was seen as a second slavery, a second enslavement, mm. um, a, a, an enormous, like the most enormous injustice. It was an economic uh, thievery, right? They were, these countries were being uh, just, um, you know, stolen from outright. Um, and their people mistreated, uh, people denied education, people segregated, um, people killed and tortured in, in, in cases where they were uprising against the uh, colonial regime. So th this beacon of Ethiopia as a, as a, a free place um, in Africa, a free black nation was really powerful uh, in, the, in the diaspora. Now that, for those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to Just In Time, Conversations, WNHHFM 103.5. Um, Ariel, I, I, as you were talking about that, yeah, I, it made me think about, you know, you're a professor, you teach history, you know, we see what's going on in Florida right now. How important do you feel history is? And and, and, you know, as I was reading this book, I thought to myself how ignorant I was of so many different things that I got taught in school. So how important is history? And is there a particular uh, uh, way to teach history? Well, I think, Justin, in your question, you gave one powerful answer to the question, and that's the one I'll focus on because there are many answers to that question. But what I'm gonna focus on here stems directly from what you just said. When you read the book, it reminded you that you were ignorant of many things. And guess what? That's true of all of us. Every time I read a historical book or a historical article, I think, gosh, there's so much I don't know. And that right there is extremely powerful. Because if you're ignorant and you never challenge your own ignorance, you live in ignorance and you do things like DeSantis is doing, right? I mean, he's doing it person, per, purposefully, but many of his supporters are, are living in ignorance of especially our country's history, right? Mm -hmm. but, but more importantly, the, the history of the world. Um, and by never challenging that ignorance in themselves, by never, you know, never educating themselves, um, that's exactly what allows them to be so myopic and and and, and close-minded and dangerous, right? Um, so so, kudos to everybody who recognizes what they don't know. You know, I think I think that is such an important, um, you know. Um, Dance for us to take to to because it allows you to continue to be educated always, to continue to take on new viewpoints, to say that you're wrong when you when you screw up and you say, you know, um, something that's hurtful because it's based in ignorance. You can say, oh, you know what? That was ignorant. I didn't I didn't mean to hurt anyone. Let me educate myself on this other person's point of view. Let me educate myself about this person's history and why they might have that point of view, right? That's one of the most important human qualities. And when we don't study history and we don't study literature and we don't study sociology, we, we really endanger ourselves in the sense that we lose that that sense, that constant reminder that there's more to learn. 
And that's that's one of the things that's most powerful to me about the humanities is it really it really inspires us to just keep learning always uh, about the people around us, about our communities and about our world. As a historian, uh, and, and, and as your Twitter handle says, proud mama, is there a way that you teach your kids about history? Is there a way that you try to contextualize what currently is going on through your lens? Like how, how do you go about contextualizing the present so that it can be present in the future? Mm-hmm. Well, that's maybe the most difficult question you've you've asked so far because it's it's a constant it's constantly on my mind. I have a nine year old and a four year old, so it's very it's very the answer to that question is different for the nine year old, of course, than it is for the four year old. Um, unfortunately, my nine year old is not particularly interested in history. <laughs> when, when I was her age, I, that was all I wanted to read was historical fiction, and she's much more interested in like fantasy uh wizards and dragons and so forth so it it makes it breaks my heart a tiny bit when she rejects the 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 book suggestions that i give her um that said you know it's it's vitally important um to me that uh you know as somebody raising white children that i constantly teach them about the, the the depth and the breadth of this country's history with regard to race, with regard to socioeconomic dif- difference, with regard to injustices, with regard to activism. Mm-hmm. Um, during the, the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, I read a really interesting article online that I've kept with me and that I've shared with other white parents in particular um, about how to teach white children to make racial justice and socioeconomic justice central to their lives and the importance in that endeavor of teaching them about activism because if you and that's true of course of all children right but i'm just speaking to to sort of the considerations that i've had um you know in my life with my children they need to know that they not only that they can make a difference because that's sort of a trite thing that people tell children oh you can make a difference but that they must make a difference Mm. that it's their responsibility to make a difference that it's a responsibility if they have socioeconomic privilege or they have racial privilege or they have gender privilege or cishet privilege that that is that is a responsibility you know i think in the in the sort of anti-woke nonsense that's going on right now there's a narrative that's developed about oh well they're making white children feel guilty that's not really it's not a productive narrative and it's not a productive thing right what you need to instill in in all again all children but i'm speaking to to the issue of white children you need to instill in them the res- the sense of responsibility that you don't just let a, an injustice stand you know you you use whatever you have whatever resources you have you have to use to make a difference in your community and that's you know so that got that discussion there got a little away from history specifically but i think history plays a a really crucial role because how do you know what the injustices are Mm -hmm. you know um how how do you for example let's use our example here right in southern hamden how do you explain 
when mama gets real angry that the street is flooding again, right? How do you explain that infrastructure is something that is unequally distributed yeah. in communities, right? Infrastructure maintenance is, is um, unequally distributed, unequally cared for, right? Um, it's, you know, I've, I've tried in a sort of age appropriate way to explain redlining. You know, how do we end up with segregated schools? How do we end up with segregated communities? What sorts of injustices, and in many cases, crimes, have been committed against, for example, African-Americans, you know, to create the injustices that we see today? So I think, you know, in that, in that call to, to take action, to to fight for these things, to make change in the world, um, it's all based in history for me, all of it, because how do you explain what's going on if you don't know what's happened in the past? So that's that's what I what I try to do with my nine-year-old is really, um, without just, you know, turning her off to all of it by lecturing at her all the time, I do try to, to, to sneak these things in um, and, you know, and talk to her you know, when something happens in the news, say, what did you hear about this? And what, how did that make you feel? And what, what do you think are the root causes of something like that? You know, and have those, those conversations with her. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that, that is, I, I think one thing that I heard from our, of what you said is that you are constantly learning and then storytelling, right? Figuring out ways how to share for people to break things down. Um, switching gears, right, to what we know and don't know, what are you working on currently? Sure, absolutely. So I I am currently working on two different projects that are very different one from another. Um, and I'll explain, explain briefly what they are and why that is. So um, I'm working on what, what we call in history a monograph, which is um, basically a single focused book uh, based on primary source re research, meaning uh, historical documents themselves, right? Archives, letters, newspapers, that sort of thing. That's what the first book is, the No Barrier Can Contain It. That's a monograph about Cuban anti-fascism. My next monograph is going to be about the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba um, and specifically uh, the U.S. press um, and its involvement in that, that planning of that invasion and the execution of the invasion. What I'm gonna do is look at um, very diverse press outlets and try to see who knew what when. Um, so what did the mainstream media know? What did the leftist media know? What did the African-American media know? What about the Spanish language media in the United States? Um, college uh, newspapers and radio, um, different and, and, and sort of uh, Christian, uh, press. Um, what did these various outlets know and when? And, and I've already made an interesting discovery, which is in histories of the Bay of Pigs, um, it's generally considered that the first news outlet that broke the story before it ever happened, that it, it talked about the fact that this was being planned, but of course the whole thing was supposed to be a secret, uh, was the nation. Um, in, I believe it was November, prior, the invasion is in April, this is the November prior. But I've already discovered that the Spanish language press uh, at least simultaneously broke the story. Perhaps, I haven't found it yet, but I think perhaps 
ahead of the nation broke the story. Um, so that's an interesting discovery already. I'm at the very preliminary stages of the research, but um, I do think it's going to uncover a different narrative that, that, than what has been taught um, generally. The second project is completely different. Um, I, I wrote a, an article in the American Historical Review, which is uh, one of the top journals in history in the US um, that came out this past fall called um, Seeing Madness in the Archives. And it is a personal story about being a, a historian who lives with mental illness, who has mental illness in my family, and who perceives mental illness in one of the, the um, characters, so to speak, in, in the first book, in No Barrier Can Contain It. Um, so it's all about sort of mental illness in the, in the practice of history. Um, if any of your listeners, it's behind a paywall, um, but uh, people have been very interested in it. So I just want to say if any of your listeners want a PDF copy of that article, if it sounds interesting to you, um, you can email me um, at my UConn, I'm a UConn professor, you can email me at my UConn email address, which is A-R-I-E-L dot l-a-m-b-e at uconn.edu i've had a lot of people come forward and say i'd really like your article but i can't access it um because you need a subscription to the journal to access it so i have a pdf i'm happy to to um send it to anyone when that came out i was contacted by a, a literary agent who said you know this is really compelling people are clearly responding to it um would you like to write a book length project in the same vein um, so that's the other thing that I'm working on. It will, um, sh when it's uh, sort of a little bit farther along, the, the agent will do what's called shop it to uh, what are called trade presses, which are like Random House, Doubleday, that sort of thing, as opposed to, you know, Harvard University Press or University of North Carolina Press. Those are university presses. That's a big divide in publishing. So this will be a trade press book if, if it's picked up by a publisher. And that's a big if, you know, we don't know. Um, but I'm, I'm working on a, an initial chapter and a proposal and so forth. And it's, it's the point of the book, uh, it's tentatively titled Unsilencing. Mm -hmm. And the point of the book is to um, tackle what, what people generally call stigma against mental illness um, head on. So to talk about some of the most stigmatized elements of mental illness, um, the most stigmatized conditions, the most stigmatized uh, symptoms, and the most stigma stigmatized treatments. Um, and, and to really just sort of blow the lid off of any residual silence around those topics for, for an average reader. No, that, that, is, uh, that is beautiful and wonderful. Um, for those of y'all who just joined us, you're listening to Just In Time Conversations, WN, HHFM 103.5. Uh, you were talking about the two different projects that you're currently working on. Uh, I guess on the first, what, you know, inspired you to say, I want to unpack this very particular aspect of how the story was told around the day of case, like what, you know, drinking coffee one day and you said, you know, reading the newspaper and you said, yeah, how did this story get created? Like what, what was the moment or moments that led up to the idea? 
That's a great question. And I, I have to say, it's more of a process than a moment for this one. Um, sometimes there's a moment uh, in, in other projects, but this one was more of a process. I uh, had the pleasure of working for a, a very uh, eminent professor during graduate school. Um, I worked for him in his US Latin American relations course uh, for a number of years. I was the teaching assistant for that course. And I, it really made me interested in US Latin American relations. Um, and the Bay of Pigs invasion is one of the most studied and also one of the most controversial episodes um, in, in US Latin American relations. And there are hundreds of books um, about the Bay of Pigs invasion. And there are many different, you know, theories about causation and whose fault the fiasco was because of course it ends in disaster for the United States and a triumph for uh, Castro's government in Cuba, which is exactly the opposite of what the United States wanted, of course. Um, and there is this concept um, that is used particularly in the Bay of Pigs invasion, but also in a number of other US interventions in Latin America in the 20th century, which is called the fig leaf. And the fig leaf references, um, you know, the 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 decoration uh, that used to be put over the genitals of, of sculptures um, or in paintings. And this was meant to, uh, you know, shield the viewer from, you know, something that was considered amoral or inappropriate. So in politics, in, in, in international politics, the fig leaf has been transformed into a symbol of this idea of plausible deniability, mm. which is an important term in, in the Bay of Pigs invasion. Plausible deniability was what uh, JFK wanted. He wanted to be able to say the United States had no, nothing to do with this, right? Even though the United States was running the entire operation, he wanted to be able to say, it's just Cuban exiles on their own, no US involvement. So that's what's called in, in vernacular, the fig leaf, right? And that's the tentative title of the book, uh, the fig leaf. So what I'm looking at is how exactly did that work? You know, what, what, what was this fig leaf? And, you know, because we know that many, many, many people knew about the invasion before it happened. And yet Kennedy's pulling back the, the vital air support which is basically the decision that loses the, the battle for the Cuban Americans and the, and the US um, was based on this idea that he needed to be able to deny that there was any US involvement. But everybody already, or not everybody, but many people already knew that the US was involved. So why did he feel like he had to do that, right? So those are some of the research questions that I'm asking. And, and it really came out of that process of looking at Latin American US relations, looking at US incursions and invasions into Latin America in the 20th century, and um, being curious about how the United States government sees these things and how the United States people see it. You know, what, what did people, what did average people think about this planning of this invasion and the execution of this invasion? Did they support it? Did they challenge it? Did they question it? And, and what did their identity to a certain extent, uh, how did their identity have an influence, right? So was the African-American press saying something different from the Spanish language press, saying something different from the mainstream press, right? Um, that's what I'm, I'm interested to find out. No, I, I, I can't wait. <laughs> Thank um, you. As we come close to the, the, the end of our time, I guess, um, you know, 
how were there any mentors to you? Were there any people that were close to you that have kind of inspired you to come to this point? Yes, uh, too many to name. Um, but uh, I will say, as an undergraduate, um, I my love of history was fostered by three professors um, in the history department at Yale. Um, Gil Joseph, who's recently retired, uh, eminent professor of Latin American history, uh, Seth Fine, who has uh, since left to be a documentary filmmaker, and Jennifer Klein, who's, uh, who's still at Yale and is a, a famous labor historian. The three of them really um, got me started. And I've had many mentors since then. Of course, I had a, a, a host of mentors in graduate school. Um, today, I would say two, two towering figures in my own department at UConn, uh, Christopher Clark, who's recently retired, and Mark Healy, who's the, de the uh, department chair of history, have both been, I would say, um, very important professional mentors in the sense that they have helped me to see the direction of my career, uh, helped me to navigate academia, and so forth. So I've, I've really been fortunate to have many, many helpers along the way. Okay. Uh, I, I always love to uh, ask people, you know, what is a song or uh, 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 songs, something that we can connect you, the work to? So what, you know, what are, what's a song that we can think of or, or song that's close to you that makes you think of either your work or, or, or history in, in its own way? That's a great question. Um, you know, there are whole catalogs of um, Spanish Civil War songs, and uh, there's none in particular that, that sticks out to me. I would just say, if your listeners have never... Um, you know, listen to the, the rousing anthems of the Spanish Civil War. It's a treat to, to just troll through YouTube and, and listen to those. But in terms of picking one song um, that I feel uh, relates to my work, you know, I, I'm moving in different directions now, but my heart is really in the 1930s. That That's really where, and I, I hope to return to the 1930s at some point later in my career. Um, that's a, a period that has always fascinated me. Um, my parents were born in 1940 and 1942, mm -hmm. and so their world was very shaped by the 1930s. So the world that they grew up in um, came directly out of out of that period. I think that that has something to do with it. Uh, but it's also such a vibrant time in leftist politics, which is very interesting to me. So one song that really um, resonates as a result of those interests is uh, by Billy Bragg. It's called Between the Wars. And it's spoken from the perspective of a working class British man um, and, you know, discussing some of the issues of the interwar period that is between World War One and World War Two um, in Britain. Um, you know, so it's a it's a particular perspective that doesn't encompass everything that I'm interested in looking at, but it's really a poignant song. It's a beautiful song. And as you may know, Billy Bragg is very much known for his leftist activism and his leftist songs. Um, so I think that's that's probably an appropriate one to, to speak to you today. My last question for you, um, where can people find you? Where can people connect with you? Um, uh, and where can people find your book? Absolutely. So, yeah, let me just give my my uh, my data here. Um, so the, the full title of the book is No Barrier Can Contain It. 
Cuban anti-fascism and the Spanish Civil War. Um, the best way to get that is to order it online. It's it's a historical monograph, so it's not gonna show up in like a regular Barnes and Noble, um, but I did write it with the hope that it would be really accessible to any reader, um, regardless of you know their uh, personal interest in history in general. Uh, I try to write in a very um, engaging tone. I don't use a lot of terminology that's specific to history or anything like that. Um, so I, I hope folks will, will check it out. Um, you can reach me, like I said earlier in the, in the talk, um, at my Yukon email address, which again is A-R-I-E-L dot L-A-M-B-E at yukon.com.edu, excuse me, .edu. Um, and I'm also on Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter. Um, and that uh, that handle is A-R-I-E-L-M-A-E-L-A-M-B-E. So Ariel May Lamb, all, all one word, obviously. No, no numbers or anything. I have a unique enough full name that I, I, mean, I was able to get just my name as my handle. Um, and, and I am active and I'm open to conversation on, on Twitter or by email. Um, I'm always interested in people who want to have these conversations or who have questions about my, my work. And like I said, if you're interested in um, sort of stigma, unsilencing around mental illness, um, I'm happy to share the PDF of that article with anybody who emails me. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, uh, Ariel, for so much for joining us and being in community. Uh, just in time, conversations 103.5 FM, WMHH. Um, so, yes, thank you for joining us. Uh, we 